Welcome to Voice of Immigration. I am immigration attorney John Veely, CEO of Online Visas, the intelligent immigration platform. And today we're talking to Dr. Raghu Kurapati, PhD, DSC, DLITT, in our conversation series. Today's show is How to Win an H-1B Visa, conversation between evaluation expert Dr. Raghu Kurapati and John Veely. Welcome, Dr. Kurapati. Thank you, John. Thank you. Good to be here. That's awesome. Well, to give a little bit of background, um, at Online Visas, we started a video and social media and marketing campaign called Are You Frustrated with Your RFEs or Denials of H-1B Visas? We put out some social media requests. Uh, we, we put it out to clients and friends to see if we could get um, some RFEs. Uh, we offered a free evaluation for that. Now, we wanted to do this um, so that we could learn how USCIS was adjudicating cases since the IT serve case. Um, which resulted in a removal of two memos the agency had used to deny cases. Uh, luckily for us, we had at that point not received any RFEs, but when we did put this out, we started to receive one. And in this process, we received a case, and uh, Dr. Kurapati had been an expert in, in one of these cases. And in that, we saw your excellent work. And so uh, we worked with Dr. Kurapati and got to know him a little bit, and we responded to the RFE for the company. We used his expert opinion, and just yesterday that H-1B was approved. So thank you very much, doctor, in helping us get thank to that you. excellent right. result. So in this process, I learned about Dr. Corpati's background, and we developed a professional friendship, and we learned about a lot of each other's approaches. We've had some great conversations, and we wanted to share that conversation with, with you guys, right? We wanted to, to go through how does an expert evaluate a case from his or her perspective, and how does an immigration attorney build a case or respond to these RFEs, right? So that's what we want to get into today. So from an expert perspective, uh, they must have an excellent uh, background, and they, they must be able to address issues from a perspective that actually educates the adjudicator. Um, they can't just sign off on what an attorney says. That doesn't bring anything new. So what we have with Dr. Corpani is an excellent uh, background. Uh, doctor, would you share a little bit about uh, your diverse background? Thank you, Jan. First of all, big thanks to you for conducting these video sessions. Well, this you. is an excellent way to communicate and share your knowledge through all these uh, unknown issues, uh, uncertainty issues. At least people who watch these video series to get some kind of comfort. There are people out there like you who can take the case very seriously and, uh, um, and, and help in the educate process with the agency. So thank you. Thank you for thank all you. your work. Thank you for your excellent track record. Mm. I was very much impressed with your website and your intelligent, artificial intelligent system that uh, personalizes the uh, case management service. So thank you. My background is I've been in the professor academic job for uh, 30 years. Mm. Uh, I'm a professor of uh, information systems management and business administration and its related areas. Uh, I am, I'm teaching uh, in the MBA program and doctoral program and um, uh, I consider myself as a scholar and a practitioner. Mm. I have industry related experience uh, more than two decades right. in the IT industry and uh, academicians. I also am heavily certified in multiple technology areas, such as uh, Microsoft certifications, IBM certifications, network certifications, financial um, um, certifications, etc. So, so combination of these three areas, academics, industry experience, and the practical certification experience make me unique in this uh, field. In addition, I have multiple doctorates. So I consider myself as a interdisciplinary person when I am looking at a situation. And one of these doctorate is doctorate in law also. So, so looking at the legal aspects, but I don't practice legal areas. I only specify specific to these expert areas. And I believe I am uniquely positioned mm -hmm. to do this with an attorney. And I believe strongly that attorneys and expert, um, independent expert opinion people should work in, work in uh, hand to hand. Um, 
experts should not look at case independently. They have to look at the holistic situation, read the RFE, and find out how to write an independent expert opinion. Well, that's, that's an excellent background um, and an excellent approach. Uh, I think you're right about the attorneys and experts. Uh, you know, what's really interesting is that a lot of folks that do these cases in immigration don't present them in the same way that other attorneys present cases, say, in court, litigators, right? And at the end of the day, um, we should do more of that. That's what we try to do, right? I think it's very important to tell an opening statement, uh, to personify the person, to talk about the company that's bringing them in, why it's important for their, them to successfully do this, because human beings are making this decision. And when you just give them a case and you just put facts out there without any of that background, it's difficult. So with an expert, if we were you know, going to court and you were on the stand as an expert, we would one have to um, indicate to the court and the jury um, why you were an expert, what your background is. And, and Dr. Corpati, very few people have such a good background as you have. I mean, 20 books, one on specialty occupations. You, can't, you couldn't have written anything more specific than you have. The numerous degrees and the certifications, you just bring a perspective that they can't have. So what's really important about the attorney uh, to that is we should be asking you the question the right way in writing, right? So asking you, how do you look at this background? How do you look at this job? Why is this job so specialized and why does it require that degree? And, and getting into it from that perspective is, is really, really critical. So, you know, thank you so much for enlightening us on what that is. Tough to, tough to beat that background, and, and you're going to need to. One of the things that we've seen um, as, as immigration has looked at expert opinions is how it just diminishes them, right? One of, one of the funny ones we, we've thought funny in a peculiar way, not in a hilarious way, um, was how they uh, distinguished a, a, an expert, and we saw a pattern of this for a while, because that expert did not have an interview with uh, the company and merely reviewed documentation. Uh, so one of the techniques we, we learned is why didn't we have a phone call or a Zoom call like this between the expert and the company, and in particular, maybe some of the um, workers in that specific field so that they could note, I had an interview on this date with this person, and here's what I learned, right? And, and that's sort of like, we think of it as a game of chess, right? So here you have this great expert like yourself and they go, oh, doesn't matter. He didn't have an interview with anybody, right? So, um, you know, playing the chess game back, well, yes, he did. Here's when he had it. Here's his notes, uh, those sort of things. Um, I've seen, you know, in, in reviewing your stuff, you, uh, you did something that was really impressive. You, you uh, noted how many evaluations or a number of the evaluation you had done. And, and so uh, by my calculations, you've done about 30,000 evaluations over about a 20-year period. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Wow. Very impressive. Uh, never really ran into anybody else that has done that many. Uh, we've, we've dealt with some of the big evaluation companies over the years. Um, you know, I've been in this business for 27 years, but still have not met anybody that has been, has done the number that you have. I mean, that's a fantastic number of cases to have done and, and a very, very uh, impressive, uh, you know, uh, win rate in that. Um, so, so, we, so, Let's go in. Now that we've, you know, if we were telling it for the jury, um, we've introduced him to the expert. The expert has got the background to be able to look at this issue. Um, he's experienced. Um, it's not his first rodeo. And uh, so let's, let's dig into some of the issues. So um, specialty occupation seems to be one of the leftovers after IT Serve Alliance. What are some of the issues you're seeing um, on specialty occupation and how do you address it? This, that's a majority of RFEs are focused on this singular issue nowadays. And yes. in the past also, specialty occupation is always this unknown, uncertain, mm -hmm. uncertain thing. Specialty occupation by law is very simple. This occupation uses specialized knowledge and skill normally found in bachelor's degrees. Right. So the agency is asking the petitioner to prove it, this job requires that specialized skill and knowledge, and hence the bachelor's degree. Why a bachelor's degree person is needed? So it is not to say, just because a person has a bachelor's degree, he is automatically qualified. That is not the intent right. of the law. 
intent of the law is specialized skills, specialized knowledge, normally found in bachelor's degree. They also say, agency also say, title does not matter. You can right. have any number of fancy titles, but title number of title does not matter. Only job description matters. Right. Most of these petitioners, knowingly or unknowingly, they will do a simple job description, like four or yes. five lines. And those simple job description is like, uh, you know, for example, in the software development field, we have something called SDLC, Software Development Lifecycle, which mm -hmm. says requirements, coding, and unit testing, installation, and uh, uh, performance testing. And right. people say four lines, and this is it. Yep. Immediately, the agency will say, this is simple and does not say much. Why do we need a bachelor's degree holder for that? Um, and some people go to the other extreme. They will write a very, very complex job with right. all the buzzwords in the field, like language Python, language C, language C++, this and that. And uh, a normal person would not be able to understand what this job description is saying. Right. So at one hand, it is not about title, it is about job description. It is about a detailed job description, typically more than a couple of pages. That's mm -hmm. I always measure it. If it is less than one, two pages, you know, people can say it is simple or is not complex enough. So normally more than a couple of pages, not simple, not vague, and has detailed description specific to the job. It should not use generic terms in the industry. If you go online and type software jobs, you will always find develop uh, software programs, uh, you know, test software programs. That is not a job. Right. So it should not be simple and vague. It should be. It should not be too uh, complex. Somewhere in between, a layman should be able to understand what this uh, job description is. In addition to this. Every job description must contains what are the tools and methodologies they are mm -hmm. using. They should have some kind of itinerary approach, like what does this person do on daily basis or weekly right. basis, which means what exactly this job divided into percentage of tasks. So at a minimum, if I have to summarize job description characteristics, it should be more than a couple of pages. It should be easily understandable to a layperson. It should really reflect the person's job, not from any internet uh, job posting. And uh, um, it should have tools and methodologies, and it should have uh, percentage times and uh, tasks. So that, that's interesting, your approach. Um, ours philosophically is the same, um, mm. but our process is a little bit different. So it's, it's pretty interesting. So our process, because we get these at the beginning and you're getting them when there's an RFE, yeah. Um, and you're looking at what's already out there, although we, we, we have to solve those too. We'll say, we'll ask for the job description. And when we look at the job description, the first thing we do is we look at the title. And uh, then what we've discovered in the last couple of years is how is immigration looking at this? So we used to use a database called ONET, right? And immigration determined, not without making any, a change in policy the ways they typically do, like issuing a memo or anything like that. They just sort of told us through RFEs and denials, uh, ONET is no longer an adequate uh, database, right? That's what we always used to look at. You'd look at ONET, you'd say it would give at the bottom the percentage of people that had either a associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree. And if it was a significant number of bachelor's degree and higher, you'd say, okay, this one meets it. It's real easy. Look at the map. Is it over 50, right? So then they said that you could only use the Occupational Outlook Handbook, the OOH. All right, so, so not to try to talk them out of their own field, we, we try to beat them at their own game. and Not beat them, but just meet their standards. So the first thing we'll do is go to the OOH. And how we approach the, here's what I don't think everybody understands when you inherit enough RFEs, you can kind of tell it. That the letter to immigration is not a job description, right? The job description is what you take to develop the letter to immigration, right? Exactly. You need to be talking to a person that is a layman. That's good to use that term. They, they're not in the tech world. They're not in medicine or law or something like that that might have a professional jargon. So it's really important that you essentially translate it from a professional jargon into layman's terms. So the first thing we do 
is we look at the OOH and we go and we see what are the duties of that job and what are the typical tasks. Now there's a, there's a to do and not to do in that. So what you should never do is take their duties and say, okay, here's our duties because they'll say to you, you've constructed this. We know what the OOH says, and these are the OOH's things. But what you do is you look for similarities, right? So one of the things I see that it does, it, it divides it into components. So if you take a developer, for example, it might be research or analysis, then followed by design, then develop, then test, and then maintain, right? Those are the different components. So we start with, okay, of the job description, how can you put it into these components, right? Now, if it doesn't meet any of those components, you go back to your client and say, I think this is the wrong job description, or you go to the OOH for them and say, this is better in this. Don't try to call it this thing, especially don't try to call it this other thing if you're trying to make it a lower wage, which is what a lot of companies have had trouble, have tried to do. Let's call them this and pay them less, right? So in this case, find the job description that meets it, put it into those components. After we put it into the component of test or develop, right? We then put a sentence, right? That describes it. And I loved how you talked about it can't be vague. That's the term of art they have. And that you should use, um, you know, the type of tools, right? So what would be vague is if you said develops software applications for clients. That's vague. That's vague, right? But if they develop client ABC's one, two, three project. And using specific. Yeah, using this particular software tool and this particular software tool, um, then that's how you would do it. Now, it, a year ago, you would have to say it to one project, especially if it's third party. Now they, with the IT serve, we don't have to put it to one project in multiple projects. So what we've done to look at that is look at historically, what were some of the clients? And you could say, develop these types of projects including but not limited to these, right? For clients we have worked on that we anticipate will continue to those types and, and that sort of language, right? So here's the type of things we've done, we've done in the past, this is what we're gonna expect to do in the future, right? So you can look at and talk to your client, okay, what are you working on now? What types of things do you anticipate to work on? Because what, what the IT surf case really stood for, as I've said it, is, is like, if I hired an attorney in my law firm tomorrow, I would not be able to say, what cases my attorney would work on for the next three years, right? I get a new case tomorrow, I get another case next week, you know, stuff like that. We shouldn't have to do that. And that's what IT serve was all about, right? So, but if we can talk about examples with that specificity, right, that's gonna do it. The next thing that I, that I like to do on these, because we are effectively writing the answer to the RFE up front, right? We're not going to, we want to, we want to get an, an approval as quick as we can. And if we do an RFE, then it's a glancing blow and you're not attacking us on this. So the next thing we know that they want to do because they tell us in the RFEs is how is it related to a degree, right? So, and, and one of the things we might say is this component um, is um, uh, you gain the, this component requires the knowledge gained in a computer related degree like or whatever you know whatever actually the, the OOH will tell you what degrees it thinks are necessary so you name the OOH degrees and if your client has that degree you say and they have that degree or if they don't have that degree but it's similar you would say like and then put their degree in there so you've now uh, you've now nailed that and then the last thing that they like in the RFEs that we don't see a lot of in the cases we inherit is that what percentage of the job is that component so if there's five components and we say, okay, this one or this component comprises 20% of the job, right? So these are the sort of things we like to do up front to address specifically what you just said. You were, you were talking so, about it so, in approach. Yeah, this is where I think you are very special in this field, John. Oh, thank uh, you, Because sir. most of the attorneys, they will simply use the job description right. from the uh, support letter or just to use it. Because yes. they feel, you know, they're also right partially. It is right. done by petitioner and the beneficiary, so it must be valid. Whereas your approach is looking at the law, looking at the denials, looking at the RFE questions, right. help these people and give the job description consulting early right. in the life cycle. Yes. Now that is, I think, uh, you are unique in that area. Well, you know, we came to that, you know, in a couple of ways, right? One is when we, we if we got somebody else's RFE, um, yeah. we're lucky when they're vague. <laughs> because we don't, we're not, we don't have to contradict it, right? We'll say, okay, here's how it's done. And in those instances, we, we have a good chance. If, 
if they identify things wrong, right? There's a lot of things you could get wrong on the specialty occupation one. One of it, when you're dealing with the, uh, you know, the, 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 the staffing business model, right? Yeah. That, the, that the, there's a petitioner and then there's an end user. Sometimes there's a vendor or two in between, maybe even more. Um, you have a number of different job descriptions. And if those job descriptions are inconsistent, then they'll play gotcha with you. And they say, well, yeah. the end user says that they're a developer and you're calling them a, you know, a test analyst, you know, then they'll go, that's contradictory and you nail it. So, so I think it's really critical for us at the beginning of the case to see, are there any of those issues there? Um, and the unfortunate thing is we see some companies that will stick it in there many times not use an attorney at all. And then if it gets an RFE, they'll knock on our door and say, can you fix it? And they were like, yeah, but your LCA says one thing and your job description says another. And uh, the user says a third, right? So um, these are the sort of things that are not really that hard to identify. There's not that many issues to look at. Um, thank you for identifying that we do that. But that's, you know, it takes a little uh, more is, work on the front end. But, yeah, that is where you, you are different. I can say that while dealing with uh, so many people. So the, the approach should be holistic approach, John. Bingo. Yeah. If I if I get an RFE and uh, some job description, I will always ask, give me the support letter that you submitted first. Because right. if you do a brand new job description, which is yeah. exactly different than what was in support letter, this case is gone. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and sometimes you get a client letter. So you always have to build a nexus between yeah. the support letter. Sometimes you have yeah. middle vendor letters. Sometimes the end client letter has only three sentences, four sentences, or no sentences. So right. you have to build that holistic relation. You yeah. cannot look at RFE by RFE or by the job description submitted by some. So I think that is where you, you know, I, I like you guys approach and looking at this holistic way and building that nexus and explaining yeah. from basic to where it is. And then when, when we identify those issues, that's how sometimes we need to get your help uh, or an right. expert's help, right? And that's where, okay, we have a job that, um, where I see where we need experts from time to time is it's a really unique job. Yeah. Um, or we're in a business, we're in a, we're in a, an OOH job that, or isn't listed on OOH, for example. And it's funny what's not there because there's some really sophisticated jobs that aren't in there, like a software architect, for example. Yeah. Right. These are the ultimate developers. Right. So you either have to say this is a senior developer or it's an architect. And then we need an expert to, to say this is why this is a sophisticated job and this is why it's there. And that's where guys like you have to dig into the job, the, the degree they have, what the job does, what others in these jobs have done, maybe the type of sophisticated projects they're working on, all those things. Right. Um, yeah. So even the law is very clear on this four prongs approach on specialty right. application. Right. The law is very clear saying only one of the four prongs should be satisfied. Yeah, that was you a know, big win first, in IT service. First one is OOH, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. occupational handbook. But sometimes there are engineers, others, uh, software occupations, others classification where you have a bunch of you know, subcodes in it. So there you, you may need an expert to validate exactly this job fits into yeah. one of those areas. We've used, experts, one is, yeah. we've used experts a lot on when you just have number four. Number right. four, yeah. 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 Number when, four when is the specialized and unique knowledge. Yeah, what's, what's different about this job from the others, right? Yeah. And, and that's where an expert's almost always required. But sometimes yeah. that's all you have is, you know, yeah. this is the job it is. It's not on OOH. Um, and, and or the OOH says that it typically doesn't need a degree, but this one really does. Yeah. I, I can tell you an example that's really been a type of industry that's been hit hard has been coaches. Right. Yeah. So um, and so we'll come in sometimes for athletic departments and things like that, because H-1Bs are often done by universities. But when it comes to their athletic departments, number one, they're autonomous. Um, number two, their coaches are really important and, and it's different than what they deal with. So uh, it's kind of funny. you got to like a coach. They say, look, a, a really great coach isn't because of a degree. Um, it's because you've been a really great coach. Right. And it's sort of kind of countervalues. And another thing you're like, well, we want everybody that's coaching our university students or people getting the degree must have a degree. Well, that in itself doesn't get an H-1B. So we've used things like uh, um, recreational workers, right? Yeah. 
which is a really low paying job, but then said, okay, this recreational worker is doing these really sophisticated things in the coaching realm. And it may be an assistant coach that has to do, um, you know, fundraising or, or recruiting or things like that. And we've, we've had to have experts come in to really dig into to this job and, and have that done. And it's difficult for us to just say it on our own, right? They're like, oh, you're the, you're the mouthpiece. So that's when we need important people from important fields to do that. So um, let's move on to um, minimum requirements. That's a really big need for experts, I think. Tell us a little bit about minimum requirements as a standard. So this is the second area within the specialty occupation that is highly, highly focused. Right. You know, people used to have a bunch of disciplines in the minimum requirement, you know, things like bachelor's degree in physics, chemistry, science, engineering, or anyone in the world can be eligible for this job. Sure. But uh, agency came back in last two years heavily focused on this and asking, justify how come a, a physics guy can be can do this job. Right. Or when you say comma engineering, this is one of the famous uh, thing last year. Right. How can engineering has 24 disciplines like right. chemical engineering, plastic engineering, mechanical, civil, electrical, electronics, computer. How come all of the 24 disciplines of engineering can do this job? Right. So he, he, the, the problem is you cannot say at that time, oh, I made a mistake. Here is the correct minimum requirement. Right. Because right. what's on the record first time stays there. You can only explain it. You cannot delete the uh, minimum requirements. Yeah. So, so in general, looking at various denials and, uh, and approvals, in general, minimum requirements should be no more than two or three disciplines. Right. like computer science, computer information system, business analytics, whatever. Sometimes it is better to have one discipline, specific discipline to the specific job. Right. You know, but but uh, petitioners want some flexibility there because they frequently hire, you know, three or four disciplined people mm -hmm. like uh, electronics engineers, computer engineers, computer yeah. science. So they have one. So it is okay to have two, three disciplines, but not more than three disciplines, what I have seen. But one of the discipline, whatever they mentioned on minimum requirement, beneficiary should have. Otherwise you are contradicting, you know, minimum requirements job because they can say, yeah, I agree. This job requires these three disciplines or these yeah. three discipline people can do this job, but beneficiaries don't have this job. Yeah, so where, we see, where we see good cases that have that issue, obviously there's bad cases when someone's yeah. got a, you know, an art history degree and they want to be a techie. Uh, but there's other cases where it makes sense. Uh, one yeah. of the ones that I find frustrating is when somebody has an MBA, right? Yeah. A very impressive degree. And they're coming in to do something right in that nexus between business and technology, right? So you can have an MBA, you know, have the gift of gab and really comprehend this and how you, you know, want to position a company, but you don't have the computer science degree. Um, and somewhere you get some jobs like business analysts, right? Where business analysts are really at that nexus, right? So a computer science degree can make sense. A business degree can make sense. And we find immigration takes that instead of saying that that's a good thing, they say it's a bad thing, right? They, they divide and conquer. And so that's where an expert can come in. Exactly. Really evaluate the background. Yeah. Um, if you look at the history of computing and computer science general, John, right you know, from 1970s or 60s even, right. computer science born out of physics, born out of electronics, electrical, the mathematics, more, more, more like so. So it is a combination of all those fields came as computer science. Right. And this is where sometimes the agency also makes a, you know, I don't say mistakes, but they may also say this business analyst job needs to have a computer right. science guy. There is no such thing. I, <laughs> no I, business I, I want to give these folks the benefit of the doubt, but you see enough of yes. it. It doesn't yes. look like a mistake as much yeah, as a not. designed denial, right? Yeah. So what can we say that can eliminate this visa, right? And, and yeah. how do we structure that argument in a exactly. way that we, you say, they give you the unanswerable questions, right? Yeah. So I think that's how we have to push back, right? We have to go get guys like you that understand it can give this historical perspective and then dig into the technology. And then at the end of the day, why having an expert's important in that and not just arguing it as an attorney is that if this, you've got to position it as if you're going to go to court, 
right? Exactly. So, so in, if, in the example that you mentioned, MBA, MBA guy is perfectly all right to do software job. We do it in the industry. We hire people because right. MBA teaches so many quantitative courses, right. such as operations research, such as linear programming, such right. as management information systems, such as system analysis design. All these are all well suited for software job. Only expert can extract the knowledge required out of the job description, mm -hmm. then build a nexus map with the courses that they are yep. related to. So that that, that uh, that's a, and, and it's interesting again. You know, same same results, little bit little bit different process. What we do yep. kind of for for our degrees, if if we think that's a question, is that we'll we ask them for their transcripts and we'll yep. actually look through and pick out the classes that makes sense from our layman's term, because we know a, a, an immigration officer is a layman too, right? Okay, yeah. here's a computer science class, here's an IT, and we'll say they had these, you know, six classes in their degree, or maybe they didn't major in it, but they had enough classes that we could say they gained the knowledge from these classes to, to do that, right? And, and so we've, we've bridged that gap a few times successfully. Uh, at least it gives us something um, legitimate to argue. Um, and, and so sometimes we'll need an expert to bolster that. Sometimes it'll, it's obvious enough, uh, you know, in, in your initial one. And then if they, they kick it back, then, then we bring the expert into that. Point. So that's a, I, lo I love it. How, you know, we, we've got to our own conclusions kind of in our own ways, yeah. our own perspectives in our own fields. And that's, that's really neat to hear. Okay. So let's, uh, uh let's move on to, um, another issue. Uh, one that we think that's, that has been a hot topic. And a frustrating topic is the CPT, curricular practical training, and the OPT, optional practical training, um, you know, issues that have uh, seemed to be hot in this year's request for evidence. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and how you're addressing those. So most of this year's uh, RFEs are on maintenance of status yep. and CPT, OPT analysis. Right. Within CPT, OPT, mainly on CPT analysis. As you have seen, uh, those people who did not get their H1s picked up, they are doing second masters or in some cases even third masters. And they are on this uh, curricular practical training, which mm -hmm. means while they are getting educated, they are also working in the industry and they are learning both academics and practical knowledge together towards that degree, which right. is that's what the curricular practical training literally means. Here the questions coming back from agency, show me why CPT is required uh, for this program and what is the evidence that CPT is directly related to the major area of the study. Right. And uh, this is also where expert comes in, uh, looks at the job description, extract the skills and knowledge out, map to the their CPT program, yeah. looking at the employer agreement between CPT University and the employer, and also their course curricula, catalog, skills, and trying to say, yes, this academic program, the skills gaining from this program based on objectives and the goals of this program matches mm -hmm. to uh, this job description. So that is what uh, we are looking and we are, we are getting good success rate on those. CPT that, analysis. That's good to hear. We're seeing some kind of very frustrating questions. For example, if you have a client um, that um, got their CPT or OPT, received their CPT or OPT at a different company, right? And then you're seeing a question uh, saying, um, please provide the agreement between that company and this university. And then you get a petitioner going, I, I'm not related to either of these, uh, you know? Um, and then, you know, you know, not, not relying on the I-20 uh, that lays out th that it was certified, that it was signed by a university official, which is technically a DSO, a designated service School officer. Of, so this is a, yeah. this is a government, um, um, you know, appointment or, or designation of, of another uh, agency officer making a call. And so here's yeah. USCIS making a petitioner prove that a U.S. government agency appointed person did their job right yeah and so that just shouldn't be their rule so we get this this thing of answering the question and then should i have to answer the question right and this is the <laughs> dilemma that we as attorneys have on how do we present it when we're doing it in a case or an rfe right 
So if we were in court and the attorney from the other side is doing it, you'd say, this attorney is making a ridiculous request <laughs> and here's why they shouldn't do it, judge, and the judge makes the call. In this scenario, the, uh, the, the person that's making the request is the determiner, right? So um, you, you can't call it ridiculous. You can't, you, you don't even think it's ridiculous. What you want to be able to do is be delicate, right? And answer the question best you can. And then, and then kind of gently remind them that this issue is beyond the scope of their authority as an agency official and that another agent has already answered this and they did their job. Your job isn't to have the petitioner prove to you that another agency did their job correctly. And this was an interesting, this is an interesting thing because this is how we saw in the sort of gotcha RFEs with the level one wages a few years yeah. ago, right? Nobody had ever heard level one wages before. Um, there was this innocuous memorandum. Uh, there was a footnote on the innocuous memorandum, still didn't deal with it. And then all of a sudden immigration is saying, you know, effect effectively prove that the Department of Labor, um, you know, LCA works, right? I mean, and so you had to go to like, page 30 something of the Department of Labor's memorandum to show them, here's what a level one wage is, here's how it meets. And so we were in this bizarre scenario of proving the immigration that Department of Labor was right to approve an LCA. Yeah. Luckily, if you, if, you, if you knew to answer it that way, you had success, but there was no blueprint of how to do that. And I remember those days waiting a while before we answered our RFEs to see how did other people answer it um, you know, talking about it, thinking about it, trying some things, using some experts, things like that. And that's what I thought was, you know, sort of foul play by this agency. Tell us what the rules are and we'll, we'll act within them, but changing them in the middle of the game is a, yeah. is a different thing. And, and, and so I, this feels a little bit of like that, right? I mean, yeah. this uh, prove that the CPT training program was, was, was accurate or, or right or give it to us when you're not even related to them in, in this sort of sneero after that had already been approved by, you know, a DSO. So, yeah, but, but on that topic, John, I strongly advise either petitioner or beneficiary go through an attorney to sure. respond to that. If okay. a petitioner or beneficiary says, you know, you should not be asking me this question, you know, agency may not look at yeah, you, you can't, you can't say it that bluntly. <laughs> Yeah, all. what you do is you answer their question the best you can. And if you best don't you have answers, right, like you yeah. can't get the training program or the university won't give in the letter, that's right. at that point. And what we do is we kind of just put it there at the base, at the at the base. We answer it and we say, you know, respectfully, um, these issues have, you know, been resolved by this court in, you know, give the court case or in this sort of issue. And then, and then let somebody with a black robe, um, you know, a judge's words, step in there and then exactly. you sort of put it exactly. at the back that's how we do it to show them if you do deny us then there's a federal case that that could be brought against you and we never really thought about that before but litigation has now become much more needed um yeah. but we've also seen a lot of cases ruled against immigration in the last year especially march 2020 had a, a bounty of them um and then you know we're, we're wrapping those cases and those fact patterns into our initial applications, something that most immigration attorneys don't do. Um, you yeah. know, and, and you got to do it the right way. You yeah. can't do it as if you're arguing with them. You have to do it in a kind of a nice way and, and put it there and aside to just to kind of tell them, hey, there's some guidance that can educate you <laughs> if you if you dare want to read it. Okay, so good discussion on that. So um, another one that uh, that you've uh, that you've dealt with, uh, I'd love to hear your analysis on is wage level analysis. Tell us a little bit about you know how you address that from an end. Yeah, so there are two variants of this uh, uh, this RFE question. Mm -hmm. One is prove it to me. This is level one wage analysis yeah. is right. <laughs> that is difficult because level one wage means it is an entry level job. Yeah. And at one point of time, it is an entry level job. And you also have to say it is specialized and unique knowledge. So I know. you have to balance those two in level one wage analysis. Yes. Level two E, level two is entry, level two is qualified, little bit higher. Yeah. And this is where, uh, you know, we ask employer or the petitioner to give us something specific to who manages this job. 
who is the manager for this job what kind of duties and check in process exist about this employers employees work like how does this person gets managed so all those things will combine and to answer you know at one point it is entry level are qualified and other firm it is specialized in unique knowledge this is the a second, really good point yeah. on if i can jump in a really good yeah. point on when if you're not having an attorney present that up front that you can handcuff the rfe exactly what we do <laughs> if there's a lot of reasons to have a level one wage in the staffing world right yeah. because it's all about margins for those guys yeah. and they and and level one wages can exist but if you read the memo a level one wage can have no discretion right so i think where you're juggling those things is the knowledge has to be gained yeah. in a university degree right mm -hmm. but they don't have any discretion on what are we going to do. So, so some danger points are if you say that they are supervisors of anybody, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. that means it's discretionary. Um, and another thing, you don't want to put lead or senior because those two terms in front of it is by definition a level three, right? Correct. So what we do, if it's level one, is we have an entry level either before each category of it or the, the job itself, and we'll put under the supervision of the senior, you know, computer engineer or whatever Correct. job exactly. is. And exactly. then we lift it there, right? And so what that does is allows them to only have a degree, but they have somebody over them that makes the discretionary decision. Exactly, exactly. And, and if, you, if, if we're getting this as an RFE and it, and it has any of those things, because a lot of people will want to have them supervising, they think it's the right thing to do, and, and they don't know that they've just stepped in one of the trap doors that, that yeah. immigration has laid for them. Uh, yeah. And that's the trick. One of the variation of this uh, LCA analysis is mm -hmm. LCA job duties are different than what is listed on OH. So what they come back, they say your job description says yeah. these keywords. Right. These keywords matches to a different LCA code right. on ONET or OH. Yeah. And they say that means either LCA is wrong, send me an LCA or yeah justify this so this well, is you, can't, <laughs> you yeah. can't go back and create an lca you can't do a new lca right i mean you that's uh, it's it, it i love it's the unanswerable question the so it's a new lca and then we'll say well this lca was done after a fact you're denied right i mean it, they they're almost inviting you right and if, yeah, exactly. if you don't see exactly. enough of it you yeah. don't know that you're walking right into the trap right i mean that's the you know we've, we've never seen these traps this yeah. significant before right i mean it's uh, and that is where the expert opinion story. also helps <laughs> to build a nexus chart and here where i think your firm does a better job where you explain the duties using those keywords yeah. but related to this lca code and uh, yeah. the current job and in thinking about is it level one right so if we're, we're we're helping analysis of that and we know it's a level one then we're then we put the supervisory language uh yeah. that there's there's a supervisor overseeing them yeah. um you know those sorts of things and 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 that goes into also the whole supervisory nature is is also important in the staffing world uh yeah. because of the right to control um immigration lost those cases but they're not happy about it right yeah. and so they're gonna they're the employee going to employer use, relationships cases yeah they, they they lost it there so they they're trying to bury they, they'll they'll sneak it back in under specialty occupation that's our that's our I guess fear. We haven't we haven't seen it on any of our cases and any of the ones we've had yet. But it, you know, there's a way they can do it. And and why I know this is because I read the language of each of the cases, um, the IT serve case, the IXC, the IXC case, or was it? Yeah, IXC. That was in South Carolina, your your home state, and and the others. Um, and I saw that um, the language in those cases was different than what the new memo says. The new memo isn't as tough on immigration as those cases were, right? And you could see that they are, uh, you don't have to give itineraries and contracts, but if you do, we get to look at them, <laughs> right? And what they're looking for is inconsistencies. What they're looking for is things like that. You can see kind of how they sprinkled it in there, uh, some of their their ways that they will use that memo to create RFEs and denials. So interesting uh, scenario for sure. So a um, couple other things uh, that are kind of current events in the H-1B analysis. One is the uh, the national interest exemption, right? And that is that the H-1B is now banned 
um, if you're outside of the United States, meaning if you're inside the United States and you change your status from an F1 OPT or from one H1B to another H1B or any other visa to an H1B, you're good. But if you're outside the United States, um, you got to get back in and you can't get back in um, unless you get a national interest exemption. And they've created new criteria, right? So this, this, is, a, this is a subject of a case going on right now um, that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in a, in a manufacturing industry of some toys is, is, is trying in the Northern District of California on how these new H-1B and L-1 regulations are uh, tantamount to the president taking place of Congress. That usually it's not about uh, requirement changes. Usually a, natu an, uh, a, a national interest sort of issue has to do with um, foreign relations and the type of proclamations we've seen in the past are, you know, let's not let people in from these countries that we have some sort of problem with, right? We're at war with them. We have bad diplomacy with them. Or types of people like dictators or cyber terrorists or, um, you know, people that are members of organizations like terrorist groups, things like that. You can have these sort of broad things like that, but, but using a domestic um, issue, um, like COVID-19's economic downturn uh, to bar people from entering from a foreign country and then using that to change the regulations to make them more restrictive is a jump that no administration's ever tried to do before, right? Yeah. So, but right now they are what they are until this lawsuit resolves it, right? So right now we have, you can get in um, if you have a, what, 30% higher wage <laughs> yeah. that, you know, you're an e at least a master's degree or, uh, or a higher, you know, very specialized type of specialized occupation. Like here's specialized occupation. Here's a really unique specialized <laughs> occupation, right? We just heightened it all up, right? So they got all these factors, right? And, and it, it's really interesting. We're working on our first one right now. Um, and uh, we, we think we meet all the criteria, but the, the tricky thing is, there's no blueprint for this, right? There's it's no it's going to be up this. to some consular officer, um, you know, and, and this is a guy from India and he has to go back and he has to come back in and, and he, his company will lose like 12,000 bucks a month and they won't be able to fulfill a contract. And, and that's one of the requirements. It has to hurt the company, right? And you can't do it from outside the country. So we had to establish why this guy can do it and he has to be there and, and these sort of things. So, Really tricky. Um, any any thoughts on the NIE? And uh, I think we have to watch it, uh, John. As yeah. more and more cases coming, more president's decisions coming, and how it pans out with embassies are, it's not. It's closed all our embassies, and yeah. only emergency appointments are given at embassies. Yeah. So we, we have to. Watch there may it. there may be some needs for some expert analysis on that too. I think expert really that, re yeah. regarding um, the position and 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 the degree and the uniqueness of it, right? Yeah. So if it's not an obvious and, and that specialized and heightened specialization. Yeah, that's that's going to be your world right there. Um, I think we're you know, as 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 practitioners, you know, it's very frustrating when you can't just deliver. Uh, the job someone wants you to do, but yeah. then w when they add a whole new level, the other thing is, okay, here's a new problem. Um, I guess we're the people to solve it. Um, so, you know, we keep having to learn new things. It seems like on a daily basis yeah. in our profession. So I think the, the key to survival right now in the field is to stay on top of it, understand why it works. Yeah. I, I used to say no two RFEs are alike. No two cases are alike. <laughs> uh, and not anymore. It's, it's become a complex thing. So then the next one, and that goes into our next thing, is there's some changes coming up. Um, right now, yeah, the is. White House has a document. No yeah. one's seen it that I know of. And we've, we've got some folks that, that, that lobby the president and, and some really high, you know, we're involved in the U.S. Indian Business Council. Um, I'm, I'm affiliated with a lot of people in IT Serve Alliance. And no one I've seen, no one I know has seen this, this document yet. And I think we're just waiting the president's waiting for the perfect kind of political time to drop it. And I'm thinking, you know, October's a month out from the election. Maybe that's it. But it, what's interesting to me is that, you know, I think he's already shown that he's going to be tough on immigration. Being tougher on it, I don't know that that's going to bring you any more votes. And it actually might frustrate some people that would have supported him. But now he's, he's handcuffed their company, right? I mean, you know, wealthy um, business owners might be pro-Trump. Uh, but, you know, if they can't, you know, 
bring their people in anymore and it gets their company, they may, they may change. So I don't, I don't really see the value politically in it for them, but, but they, what they want to do is, is one of these, uh, you know, emergency orders, meaning that they're not going to put it out there for notice and comment. I mean, they just drop it on you, which, which brings it up for a court um, uh, situation. We know the chamber of commerce is going to sue on it, uh, but you know, how is it going to um, effectively um, very much chill or, or kill, uh, you know, the H1B reliant uh, companies for the remainder of the year. That's what I'm afraid of for our clients is that, all right, I guess we can't do H1Bs until uh, and unless there's a change in the presidency or the first of the year, you know, once it quits being political, right? Uh, will it be, right? So it's an interesting time to do immigration, isn't it? And, it's uh, an interesting time, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, guess, I guess like you said, it's a wait and see. Uh, any thoughts that you have about these changes? You've been watching any of this or how do you feel about we, it? We are all watching, same as you, you just described. <laughs> we are all watching. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you so much. Um, this you. has been a great yeah. conversation. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, and, and I hope our viewers do too. This is, uh, we've gotten really in depth and, and come from a couple of different perspectives. I hope it was helpful. Um, so if, hey, if you guys are watching on YouTube, uh, if you want more information, please subscribe to this channel. We're always doing this sort of stuff. We, we bring on great people like Dr. Korapati all the time. We dig into these, uh, these, these issues that, that might be very important to you or your company. Um, and you can also turn on your uh, notifications and I'll keep you in the loop. And, uh, if you like it, uh, please like it and share it. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. So I'm, I'm John Veely, CEO of Online Visas, the intelligent immigration platform, and we deliver dreams. Thank you. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> Thank you.